All right. So for the fa- for the past two months, basically straight, we've been going through the Gospel of John, and so I, I thought maybe we could take a step back this Sunday. We're still going to talk about John, but in in a different way. Um, I want to kind of highlight some of the themes in John. Um, last week we looked at the seventh and the final "I am" statement that Jesus makes throughout his ministry. And each time that he makes one of these statements, he reveals more about who he is. And typically, these statements are connected with a miracle. Um, John likes to call them signs. And if you're curious, back in March, we did a kind of a breakdown of the seven signs in John. Uh, you can go back and listen to that on the website. But um, John chooses to only highlight seven miracles. We know that Jesus did more, more than that, but he chooses specifically to highlight seven to bring about a theme in each of them. Um, and we know that seven is a significant number in the Bible. Uh, it represents completion or perfection. God created the world in six days, and upon its completion, he rested on the seventh day. The Lord's Prayer contains seven petitions. Um, Jesus made seven statements while he was on the cross in completion of his earthly duties. And I could go on and on. There, it's, it's throughout the Bible, this, this significant number seven. So this morning, I want to go through the seven I am statements that Jesus makes. And Jesus uses these seven metaphors to describe himself um, as the path to salvation and as a reference to his deity, as a reference to him being God. And so we're going to look at these this morning. Some of you have haven't been through the whole series with us. John is a long book, and we've been in it for a long time. In fact, uh, I came when we were in John 10. 10. Um, I started in John 10. Our last pastor, Rob, started the series last year, and so it's been quite a while. And I kind of inherited this series at the beginning of the year, but I'm happy to go through it. John is a very interesting and significant book. So let's jump, let's jump into the straight, sorry, let's jump straight into the first one. In John 6:35, Jesus declares to the crowd that's gathered, "I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst." And in order to understand why he says this and what he actually means, we need to look at what's going on here. We need to look at the context. Um, remember, each of these I am statements are typically connected with a miracle. And the miracle connected with this statement uh, is Jesus' fourth sign in the book of John. Remember, there's seven signs, seven statements, seven signs. The fourth sign in the book of John, the feeding of the 5,000. And I'm guessing we're all familiar with this miracle. It's, it's the only miracle besides the resurrection that's in all four of the Gospels. So it's, it's, a, it's a famous one, I guess. And I'll just summar, kind of summarize what's happened. Jesus has been healing sick people. And so people start to follow him. And it becomes this very large crowd. Uh, the number of people is 5,000. But we need to remember here that... They're just counting the men. So there's actually a lot more people than that. There's probably at least double uh, the amount of people, like 10,000. And so Jesus and the disciples are walking. They stop on the side of a mountain to take a break. 
And Jesus asks the disciples about finding food for them and for the crowd, for everyone. But he's testing the disciples. He knows what he's about to do. Um, they kind of look incredulous. This would, cost, this would cost a year's salary to feed all these people. But he knows what he's about to do. And Andrew kind of meagerly says, well, there's this boy with five loaves of bread and two fish. Maybe he can feed us disciples at least. Um, but Jesus gives thanks for that food. And the disciples distribute it to the crowd as Jesus directs. And it's multiplied. And it says, when everyone in the crowd had eaten, they gathered up 12 baskets of leftovers, 12 baskets of bread. And verse 14 and 15 say, when the people saw that the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. So the crowd recognizes Jesus as Messiah. But there's a problem because in verse 15, it says, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew. Why does Jesus withdraw? Well, his hour had not yet come. And he says this many times throughout the Gospel of John. Um, Jesus, and Jesus was not the kind of Messiah that, that they were expecting. And I, I've repeated this several times as well. They thought that the Messiah would save them from their earthly oppressors. But Jesus didn't come to save them from Rome. He came to save them from sin. And so he withdraws. And, and the next day, the crowd finds Jesus. And, and remember, he had withdrawn. So they go looking for him and they find him. And Jesus says to them, in verse 26, truly, truly, I say to you, you were seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. You see, Jesus knows their hearts. And the, the crowd demands a sign, and in so many words, they're asking Jesus to give them more bread, is what they're actually asking him. Um, besides the bread and the fish that they had eaten the day before, I'm guessing they hadn't eaten anything this day. Remember, it's the next day. And so Jesus responds to them in verse 33. He says, For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And they're still not getting it. So Jesus clarifies, and, and this is where we see the first I am statement. In verse 35, he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And then the people, they hear this and they start to grumble. What is he talking about? We know his father and mother. He's, how can he say he's come down from heaven? We know who his family is. We know he's from Galilee. And there's an, there's an interesting parallel here. We're told at the beginning of the chapter that this is the Passover time. This is, Passover is a week-long celebration. And, and so Passover celebrates when Israel was delivered from Egypt, specifically when they're saved from the, from the last plague that kills all of the firstborn sons in Egypt. The Israelites paint blood above their doors, and then the angel literally passes over 
their houses and, and, and their, their firstborns aren't killed like the rest of the Egyptians. And, and this is, at the end of this plague, Israel is permitted to leave. They're permitted to go out of Egypt and they head for the wilderness. And the feeding of the 5,000 in John chapter 6 also takes place in the wilderness. It's in the countryside. And just like the manna that God provided for Israel in the wilderness about 1,400 years earlier, these Israelites also grumble among themselves and complain. And the difference between this sign and the miracle of the manna uh, with Moses is that the bread isn't falling from heaven. The true bread from heaven, Jesus, is providing for them himself. He obviously can't satisfy their hunger in a way that, sorry, he obviously can satisfy their hunger in a way that food, bread, cannot. He can satisfy their spiritual hunger, their hunger for purpose, their hunger for, for love and for meaning. And he says, I am the bread of life. And he starts to expand on this. He says, your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread, he's pointing to himself, that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. And he continues to expand on this. He says in verse 53, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of, of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. And he's talking about receiving salvation, of course. He's, but he's using this graphic metaphor to explain this. And, and many in the crowd take this literally, and they're, they're disgusted, and they leave. This is a hard teaching, they say. They're, they're, they're repulsed at, at what Jesus is saying, but he's speaking in a metaphor. Um, they don't know what to think of Jesus anymore after he says this. But Jesus, does, he doesn't try to explain that it's a metaphor. He does this a lot. He says something hard to understand, and he doesn't really explain himself. And sometimes the disciples afterwards say to him, what are you talking about? But often he doesn't explain himself. And we, we, we need, he wants people to think about what he's saying is really what he's trying to do. He wants them to meditate and think hard about what he's saying, what he's teaching. And we need to do that as well with the word of God. The teaching in the Bible is not always easy to understand. The word of God needs to be pondered. It needs to be sat on. We need to, to meditate on it. And there's one more interesting thing in this passage. In verse 56, when Jesus, he repeats this metaphor, he says, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Again, he's using a metaphor to talk about trusting and believing in him. But that's the last, but the last part of the verse, abide in me and I in him, that sounds awfully familiar, doesn't it? It sounds a lot like what we looked at last week when Jesus declares to the 11 remaining disciples that he is the true vine. I want to jump ahead to that last statement. And just a quick review of last week. This is Jesus' last teaching to his disciples. 
before he's arrested and crucified. And in chapter, one, chapter 15, verse 1, he declares to the disciples, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. And then he goes on to explain that the father is the vine dresser because he will prune and help the branches to grow, and he will discard the branches that are dead, the dead branches, like a, like a good vine dresser would, right? And then in verse 4, he says, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. When we when we place our hope and our trust in Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we are united with him. This is a picture that Jesus is giving, this picture of the vine and him as the vine and his followers as the branches. And it gives us a better idea of what our union with Christ looks like. We abide in Jesus, we remain connected to him, and he gives us life. A branch of a tree is alive because of the sap that flows through the trunk, right? Without the sap, the branches die. In, verse, in chapter 14, Jesus promises to send the Holy Spirit. And he says that the Holy Spirit would live in the disciples of himself, of Jesus. When we become followers of Jesus, God lives in us. We are united with Christ, and that's only possible because the Holy Spirit is living in us. And so when we abide in Jesus, when we remain in him, and we live in him and through him, and when he abides in us, we bear fruit, Jesus says. And he says here in verse 4 that unless a person abides in him, they won't bear fruit because they won't have his life in them. We find life in him when we abide in him, when we're connected to him and united with him. When we find life in him and out of that comes fruit. I don't want to get too much into this because we talked about this last week, but the fruit is really the evidence of Jesus' life in us. If we don't see fruit in our lives, then there's a problem. There should be fruit because Jesus as the vine, as life in us, produces fruit. One more thing about this passage. Because chapter 14 ends with Jesus saying, rise, let us go from here. That's the very last thing he says. A lot of scholars and commentators believe that the disciples leave the upper room. They're having their last supper together, remember? They leave the upper room and they start making their way to the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus is arrested later that evening. And the reason this is, this is significant is because they likely would have passed the temple. And, and one of the decorations on the temple above the entrance is a large gold vine, very large. And we saw last week that throughout the Old Testament, a vine or a, or a vineyard are often used as symbols for Israel. And so when Jesus declares, I am the true vine, he's saying, I am the true Israel. 
Jesus fulfills what was intended for Israel. And we looked at this last week. The path to God is no longer through the nation of Israel, but through Jesus. Remember, Gentiles could become believers. They could become Jewish converts. And so if, if someone from another nation believed in God and wanted to be right with God and follow God, they could become a Jew. But Jesus says he is the true vine now. He has become the only path to God. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And that's another of his statements. That's the sixth statement that he makes. I know there's only three up here, but we're kind of jumping back and forth through these. Um, We find this one in chapter 14. We looked at this about a month ago, but really I think I only focused on the fact that Jesus is the way. So I want to look more at what truth and life means when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus tells his disciples that he is leaving them, and they're really, really upset about this. And in chapter 14, verse 4, he says to them, And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. What does Jesus mean? He says, you know the way to where I am going. The disciples know the way to where Jesus is going because they know Jesus. He is the way to the, to the dwelling place of God. He is the way to eternal life. There's no other way to be saved from sin. There's no other way to God but through Jesus. He is the exclusive path to God. And, and we talked before last month about why this is so offensive because The religions of this world all claim to be a path or a way, but Jesus says, I am the way. He's also the truth, and he taught truth and he embodied truth. In John 1, at the beginning of John's gospel, um, verse 14, he says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. In John chapter 8, Jesus is speaking to another crowd, and he says in verse 31, If you abide in my word, you are my true disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And Jesus didn't merely teach the truth. He is the truth, right? He declares that to the disciples. And so, As the disciples abide in him, they will know him. They will know truth. And because they know Jesus, they will be set free. You see, knowledge doesn't set us free. That's what the Gnostics believed. The Gnostics were a sect of early Christianity. And you may have heard of the Gnostic Gospels. That's the subject of the Da Vinci Code, the books and the movie. The Gnostic Gospels and Gnosticism in general was considered heresy almost immediately because Gnostics believed that you would be saved through special knowledge that you could receive if you worked hard enough for it. But we don't earn or work for our salvation, right? We, we receive it freely from Jesus. He is the truth, and the truth, Jesus Christ, sets us free. Lastly, in this one statement, he says, he is the life, 
And we, we just saw that that's really what Jesus is talking about when he says that he is the vine. He is a life, he is the life giver, not a life giver, the life giver. And throughout that passage, Jesus says to his disciples, abide in me. He says this constantly, abide in me. What does he mean by that? Well, we, we looked at another passage last week where we saw that Jesus says the same thing. I can stay on this verse. Um, he says, if you abide in my word, I'll, I'll read this again. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So what does it mean to abide in Jesus? Well, it actually means more than one thing. The Greek word used in chapter 15, the word that's translated into abide, literally means to stay or to remain. And that makes sense when we're imagining the picture that Jesus gives us of, of us connected to him as branches, connected to the vine. We remain connected to him and he gives us life. So, so what does it mean to be Sorry, what does it mean to abide? Well, first of all, it means to be connected to him, as we said, and remain in him. But it, it also means to remain or persevere in our faith in Jesus. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 24, John says, Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. So we remain or we persevere in our faith in Jesus. Secondly, what does it mean to abide? It means obedience. Jesus says in chapter 15, verse 7, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. When, you, when we are abiding in Christ, when we are actively seeking to do his will. If you abide in me, he says, and my words abide in you. His words abide in us or remain in us when we're living them out, right? And we can see that's what he means when we look further ahead to verse 10 in chapter 15. He says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. Jesus gave us an example of obedience to the Father. And, and we are to remain or abide in the love of Jesus by being obedient, by keeping the commands of Jesus, the commands that he gives us. Finally, what does it mean to abide in Jesus? Well, we actually start abiding in him by first accepting him as our Savior. Back to John chapter 6. This, remember this metaphor, he says, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. Again, Jesus isn't saying this literally. It's a metaphor for salvation, for accepting and receiving the forgiveness of sin and the new life that his death and his resurrection have accomplished. Verse 56 Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. So the first way that we remain or abide in Christ is by accepting him as our Lord and our Savior, believing and accepting what he's done and then trusting him as Lord of our lives. So 
really, I should have given these in the opposite way. We accept him as Lord of our lives. We follow him and keep his commandments, and we remain in him. We persevere in faith. We remain connected to Christ who gives us life because he is life. And that leads us to the fifth I am statement. Jesus says in John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. Again, we're not going in order. That's why there's only four up here. Um, But this is the fifth consecutive statement that he makes. What is the context surrounding this statement? I am the resurrection and the life. Well, the context is one of Jesus' most important and well-known miracles, and it's the last of his public ministry. It's the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Mary and Martha, the sisters of Lazarus, send for Jesus because their brother is very ill. But Jesus hesitates. He doesn't leave right away. And when he finally does arrive in Bethany, Lazarus has been dead for four days. And Martha runs out to him and she says in verse 21, sorry, 22, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. What does Jesus mean by this? Most of these I am statements uh, are very provocative. He's trying to get a response from the people that he's saying them to. He's trying to get a reaction. He's trying to make them think more deeply about who he is and, and what he's come to do. Remember, he, he reveals more about himself each time that he says one of these I am statements. And so he says this to Martha for a reason. He's challenging his concept of her concept of who he is. Jesus states here that he has authority over death. Martha understands what resurrection means, but her understanding of resurrection is the end of the world when the righteous would be resurrected. What Jesus is actually saying is that the Father has given him authority to bestow resurrection life on whomever he wants. In in chapter 5, verse 21, Jesus says, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. So Jesus not only has authority over death, he has the authority to give life, true life. Back in John 11, Jesus says to Martha that those who believe in him will live eternally, meaning that though they physically die, there will be life after the grave. One commentator says eternal life and rescue from death are not just gifts from God, They are a part of what it means to be in Christ. I wish I would have put this up up there. Let me say that again. Eternal life and rescue from death are not just gifts from God. They are a part of what it means to be in Christ. Followers of Jesus experience eternal life right now because we are no longer dead in our sin and because Jesus is living in us and we are in him. Remember, we are united with him. And as we abide in him, 
we continue to grow and mature and become more like him. You may have noticed that um, the four I am statements that we've looked at so far, let me get them up there, um, all have to do with Jesus being life. I am the bread of life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. Again, Jesus is saying he is the giver of life when he says, I am the true vine. And then I am the resurrection and the life. This is definitely one of the most important things that Jesus is trying to communicate to people um, during his time here on earth. He is the source of life. And in, in, in fact, John opens his gospel saying this very thing. In John chapter 1, he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Through Jesus, everything was made, John says. He is life, and he is the source of life. And then John closes this gospel by saying in chapter 20 that he's written this gospel so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Yesterday, I had a decision to make. Do I, do I preach for over an hour and try to cram all seven of these I am statements into one sermon? Or do I split up this sermon into two so that we can spend more time on the last three, which I'd like to do, um, and so our food doesn't get cold? <laughs> so I've, um, I'll close with this. Have you ever experienced, I'll just ask you guys, have you ever experienced this life? Do you see the fruit of Jesus in your life? If you do, you know that the fruit is only there because we continue to go to the source, the true vine. We have to daily continue to go to the source of life, the true vine. Jesus left that example for us. He went to the Father each morning. Um, he went to the Father because he needed to not just to leave us an example. Remember, he was, or he is fully God, but he was also fully man. And now that he's ascended back to the Father, we can come before him to receive from the giver of life. We can receive life from him because he is our bread of life. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And he is the resurrection and the life. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, you are the source of life. The scripture tells us that all these things were made, all things were made through you. You are the, the source of life and you invite us to come and find life in you. But we, we forget to do that sometimes. We often do not come to you as consistently as we need to. We, we know, Jesus, that we need to eat every day and yet, you are the bread that brings life in a more abundant way than physical food ever can. And so we pray that you would help us to be attuned to our spiritual hunger. We pray that you would help us to feel that spiritual hunger like we feel physical hunger, 
Lord, and we, we ask that you'd help us to see that you are our, our daily bread. We thank you that you, you already want that for us, and, and we, just, we just need to ask and be willing. So we ask right now that you would help us. And we pray all this in your name. Amen.